Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 68. This week's feature, our top 10 co-op games. We'll also be talking about the Origins Awards, the Titan series, Mission Red Planet, Abyss, and Lanterns, the Harvest Festival. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. This is Anthony. And this is Daniel. Welcome to the episode, everyone. We're so glad to have you join us on this week's episode. Our feature review is going to be the top 10 co-op games of all time. As least... of 2015. <laughs> according to us. Based entirely upon our subjective evaluation with no standardized metrics whatsoever. Wow. Is that the, the, the board game Ghosts of the Future? We know how to sell something. <laughs> I guess so. You guys really should keep listening because this is clearly going to be an amazing feature. <laughs> the power, the passion, the legal disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get too excited. It's not that special. All right, fine. All right. <laughs> well, that being said, we wanted to let you know and give you an update about an episode that we have coming up on our episode 74 we're gonna do our listener feedback episode so be sure to get your emails your tweets your facebook posts your i don't know let's say pictures and random comments on our guild on board game geek because we want to hear from you we're going to collect them all on and then on episode 74 we're going to talk about all of them and let you know what other listeners are thinking and saying and we're going to say things, and Anthony's going to have legal disclaimers at some point, but it's going to be fun. It's going to be awesome. It's an episode for you guys to talk to everybody out there in the board game universe. Yeah. Yeah, I get <laughs> – every week I get comments from all over the place, and they seem to be evenly distributed across all of the many platforms to which we publish, which is to me is pretty cool uh, just because I know everybody's out there listening in their own special way. So – whether you're one of the people that I communicate with on Twitter all the time about all the various questions that I'm constantly asking, or if you send us emails through the website, or if we're communicating via Board Game Geek, you send in messages there, you know, shoot over a message. We're Obviously, we respond to all these as much as we can, and we'll read them on the episode whenever we can, but this episode's going to be especially specifically for you. And in the next few weeks, we'll probably uh, throw a few topics out there and some primers and some other cool stuff to kind of seed the waters to make it a little easier and to make sure that it's not just a long list of uh, questions about <laughs> the types of games we like to play. Try to give it a little bit of format. Yeah, so for each and every week, Anthony's going to go on Twitter and tweet a question out to everybody. And when we get the responses back, the following episode, we're going to talk about what you had to say and, you know, debate it back and forth a little bit. You know, yeah. Anthony's pretty much on Twitter all the time anyway. So, you know, chime in whenever you get an idea. Two in the morning, <laughs> you know, middle of the night, doesn't matter. Anthony will be there. I am, I am willing to commit Anthony's time <laughs> to constantly monitoring our Twitter accounts. My next five tweets are going to be Daniel's email address. So. <laughs> Daniel, it, it takes a very, very, very generous and brave man to dedicate anthony to the response around the clock 24 hours seven days a week 
I really am sacrificing a lot of of myself here. I see that, yes. By sacrificing Anthony and his stuff. Mostly mostly sacrificing him, actually. But, you know, it is it is a very generous thing, you know? That's, that's how much I, I think, care about our fans. So that being said, Anthony is available and waiting for your tweets. Let's head over to the tabletop. Yep, Drew's not here this week uh, after last week's episode where he heard me talking about Matt Gertz and his famous rondelle. Drew was so taken with that mechanic that he went off to play his game and is unfortunately locked into an infinite loop in a rondelle in a Matt Gertz game. And his friends and family are hoping that at some point he will be able to escape that loop. But if you've ever played a Matt Gertz game, you really never do. It's always in your head. It's continuously going around and around. But... We hope to have Drew back here next week and probably a lot dizzier than usual. Shout it from the tabletops. <laughs> Sir, you're going to need to get down from there. So this week's Shouting from the Tabletop, we wanted to bring you some brand new news on award season. So first up, we wanted to talk about the Origin Board Game Awards. Now, you probably are pretty familiar with the Origin Convention. This is a great board game convention all about getting gamers to the table. It's not the big type of press and publisher convention. It's just about gamers. Each year they give out awards and they have separate categories for each different area. So we wanted to talk a little bit about each of the different areas, debate it a little bit, and uh, see what you thought about it. So first up, the first and probably the most important category is Best Board Game. All right, gentlemen, here are the nominees. First off, Abyss. Second, The Battle of Five Armies. Third, Cash and Guns, Second Edition. Fourth, Dead of Winter, A Crossroads Game. And finally, Sheriff of Nottingham. What do you guys think? That's a weird list. Really weird. It's like Dead of Winter, which will obviously win, and then four random other games that are all good. They're good games, but game of the year? Yeah, I got to say, I'm with Anthony on this. The confluence of awards elsewhere and its market success makes me think it's going to be Dead of Winter and that no one else in the bracket even had a shot. As you guys said, I mean, I think it's such a strange category. These games are all good games, if not great in their own right. But it's really such an odd mix. I can't imagine how they came up with these nominees. Abyss, which is a game we're going to be talking about a little bit later at the table, is a quite beautiful game. But I don't know. It doesn't really have the, I don't know, the teeth as far as game of the year. The Battle of Five Armies is, once again, another great game. But it's kind of been underneath the radar. It really has been picked up by most people. And I'm surprised to actually see this here. Cash and Gun 2nd Edition is a good upgrade from the 1st Edition, but best board game of the year, especially that's it's basically the same game as the first one. Dead of Winter makes sense, and as Daniel said, it's probably going to take it pretty easily. And then Sheriff of Nottingham is a decent little party game, but once again, best board game? Why isn't that under best card game? All right, so that's that category, as confusing as it may be. The next category is Best Card Game, and the nominees are Among the Stars, Linko, Star Realms, Splendor, and Sushi Go. All right, guys, go. Okay, again, we've got one or two <laughs> nominees that make sense, and then three other random games. I think Star Realms walks away with this one easily. Daniel, how about you? 
based primarily on my affection for this game, I'm gonna say Among the Stars, but that might just be wishful thinking. In fact, it almost certainly is just wishful thinking. <laughs> Among but, the Stars is a great game. It's It, it is. also is like a three-year-old game, though. I mean, I know it's new to the U.S., but it's been out for a long time. Well, and I'm wondering if that might count in its favor in that it will be perceived as having a very significant market presence, and so it'll be seen as being more significant in that way. I mean, it also might count against it if the... Uh, you know, the judges, as as they probably are, are people who have been playing this game since before it arrived here through official channels. See, for me, once again, as as you both said, it's a very odd mix of games that almost seems random. As I said, I don't understand why Sheriff of Nottingham was listed as best board game. And I don't know. I think if you're going to do that, why isn't it Splendor listed as best board game? I, I think Splendor has more game components. Those chips... And the cards that you put out on the table makes it more of a board game than Sheriff of Nottingham is a is a board game. Yeah, I mean, and Splendor is probably the one of the stronger ones in this category, just given the number of awards it's raked in elsewhere and the amount of attention it's got. I'm starting to resent it a little for the <laughs> amount of attention it's getting because I think it might be getting a bit more than it deserves. I mean, it's an excellent game, but still not that excellent. I would agree with that, too. I've played Splendor recently, and I, I still like the game, but I don't know. After probably the second time playing it, I felt like I'm done. I got it. Okay, it's 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 interesting. It's it's obvious. It's fine. It's, it's not a problem. I don't know. Star Realms is a really great little deck builder, priced exceptionally well, has an excellent app, has really some nice expansions. I would love to see Star Realms win, but probably Splendor is going to pull it out if popular purchasing power you know has any say in this yeah i mean i think star realms has done pretty well for itself on that front um who knows how many total copies everything sold but it's uh it's just a weird category yeah Yeah. (laughs) splendor will win something though because that game is it seems to be popping up everywhere i remember back to the dreamation auction and splendor was going for list price if not higher and that was just amazing why people were paying so much for that game. Yeah, and it came out a lot. Like, when you go to the playroom, it was on every table almost. It was, everybody was playing this game. Yeah. So it's been maybe a year since the last time I played it. So it's not fresh in memory, but, I, you know, it's not a tough game either. So I do remember it fairly well. And it's fun. I enjoyed it. I gave it a play. I just, I don't. I guess I'm not on the Splendor bandwagon, as I guess none of us really are at this point. No. Um, and, uh, but I know it's it's blowing up everywhere. So it's one of those games I think gamers look at. And they're like, oh, this is cool, and I could teach it to anybody. I guess. Those people pick that stuff up. So. I mean, I, mean I, I really like the heaviness of those poker chips that they use for the gems. But, man, there's gems and plastic gems in almost every game. Why did they not use just the plastic gems here? The, the chips seem really odd. They almost seem like a play play school type of component that children would play with. I don't know. Yeah. Let's not let's not get into a whole review. <laughs> that's I think it's, I it's, it's got it's got momentum, and that's what's probably going to carry it through. Is that it's got buzz, right? It's got the buzz and the momentum and the and the sort of popular power behind it. It's a pop star, a gaming pop star. Mm. Okay. Well, and the final category that we're going to talk about, the Origins Awards, actually has a number of categories, mostly miniatures and war games and things of that nature, and some of the heavier collectible card games. 
But the third and final category we're going to talk about is best children's family and party games. This is one category all together. And there are three nominees. The first nominee is The Hare and the Tortoise. The second one is Archer, the Danger Zone board game. And the third category is Gravwell, Escape from the Ninth Dimension. <laughs> You're... Yes! <laughs> okay, first of all, no game based on Archer belongs in a family no, category. No. That is I'm, not remotely Children's family, family and party. Why is it? I am there? very glad that's the first thing you said. I know you're excited, but that is the most important thing to take out of this. Archer? Really? <laughs> Children? Oh, my God. But Gravwell. Oh, man. I'm... I don't know if it's going to win, but my love for this game blinds me to any other possibility. So it, it must be destined to take the uh, to take the category by unanimous decision. You mean to take the category for best children's game? <laughs> I don't care. Yes. Uh, it's like a weird what? <laughs> it's not. It's not a children's or party game. It's a fantastic game. I thought I had a bunch of different ideas in my head about what you might be coming because you, you hinted before recording that it would be significant to me. Gravwell was nowhere on the <laughs> list of things I was thinking about. Not at all. It's, this, this reminds me of like these categories remind me of Sesame Street. <laughs> Which of these things are not like the others? <laughs> <laughs> this entire category is not like the others. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> it, it's Archer, Gravwell, and what was the other one? The Hare and the Tortoise by Aiello Games. So that's that sounds... actually a children's game. That's okay, actually... so <laughs> one children's game. I guess Archer might be a party game. Might be. I don't. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but and then Gravwell is a fantastic game. But I don't think it plays enough to qualify as a party game. And I don't know that it's particularly child friendly. It's not super <laughs> unfriendly either. But it's not a children's game. There's nothing about Gravwell that makes it a children's game. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's not like it would. I mean, most <laughs> you know, most kids probably I don't know, twelve and up could figure it out easily. Ten and up, maybe even, but it's not a kids' game. Still, I just what? Yes, exactly. So, welcome to the Origins Gaming Awards. <laughs> Are we sure this wasn't? an april fool's joke or something their categories because they are they all seem so strange yes yes they are honestly the other stuff makes a little bit more sense as far as historical board games and miniature games and things of that nature the role-playing supplements are there too but we know that dungeons and dragons is just going to roll through all of that as it should yes uh you know there's some interesting miniature kind of things there but these are kind of like the heavy kind of stuff this is not board game miniatures this is not board game historical games this is not board game war games this is this is for like the hardcore players in each of the categories that's what makes the board game card game and children's family party game so odd because the other ones are so sharp on their category and these three almost seem random if you told me these were random i would absolutely positively agree with you yeah, if you, if I had to guess what made them, like what properties they shared, alcohol, I would, <laughs> with some form of illegal drugs, include the letters R and A, all three, all three of them, uh, and E. 
that's yeah r a and e that's what they share three letters in the title <laughs> okay <laughs> well good luck to all your r a e nominees and now our acquisition disorders acquisition disorders that's crazy only needs the base game nothing else but the base game the base game and the expansion see nothing else just the base game and the expansion and the promos the base game the expansion and the promos and of course the upgraded components why wouldn't you have the upgraded components so the base game the expansion the promos and the upgraded components see that's not too much but maybe i don't know maybe you might need to now on to our acquisition disorders anthony all right so i got on this kick a few months ago of reading all these books about mars for some reason it started with his book, The Martian. Uh, this guy gets stranded on Mars. It's like 20, 30 years in the future. And it's like mad missions to Mars and he gets stranded there. And it's like incredibly gripping story of how he stays alive for, I think, a year and a half on Mars by himself. So I got really into it. I'm like, wow, this is really cool. So naturally, I switched to science fiction in which we actually live on Mars. And at a certain point, I'm like, why is there not a board game about colonizing Mars? And then Chris at one point mentioned Mission Red Planet. I'm like, that is a board game about Mars that is also out of print. So <laughs> I was instantly annoyed. When I last week I saw this pop up on uh, Dice Tower News that Fantasy Flight is reprinting Mission Red Planet with a bunch of new stuff, new artwork, which looks awesome, by the way, and a couple of new variants. Uh, plays up to six players now, has a two player variant, uh, lots of cool little miniatures. I obviously, I've haven't seen firsthand the components of the original printing, so I don't know how different they are, but I know that the new printing looks really good. And it's not, you know, it's not future. This is like steampunk 1890s, I think, 19th century mission to Mars. But it's cool. Like, it's it evokes that feeling, that kind of John Carter to Mars type of feel combined with Victorian steampunk uh, exploration that uh, I've been looking for in a board game. And it's got an awesome map of Mars that you get to colonize. So I will definitely be picking this up. Very, very much looking forward to it. Uh, If only because I wanted to play it like three months ago and I don't know where to find it. So now I can find it. Yeah, I remember playing the original edition of this. And there are some differences. Fantasy Fly hasn't released all the details, but there are some pictures. So one of the differences is instead of putting these like little round pellets on the planet in order for area control... It actually has little astronauts now. So that alone makes this game so much better. It still has the spaceships that you're able to kind of load up and then shoot off, which is so great. And it still has the Citadel's mechanic where you have all of these different roles that you get to play. And some roles really counter other people's roles. So you got to be sure what you're playing and when you're playing it. And almost like Concordia where... You can play a certain number of roles, but then you have to play a card to get all the roles back into your hand, and it's a lot of fun. It's it's a little random for my taste, but hopefully this Fantasy Flight version tightens it up, and if Anthony doesn't get this, I am picking this up because I am really looking forward to this brand new printing of this game because it's outstanding. So for my acquisition disorder this week, I have a, another strange acquisition disorder. It seems to be an ongoing trend. Mine is a Kickstarter project called the Titan Series. Now, Drew talked about this quite a while back on Shadow from the Tabletop. And the Titan Series is a really interesting idea. The What we're looking at here is nine gateway games that you can back 
You get three games a year delivered for three years, and they're $16 a game. Now, okay, so that's a little out there. Why would I want to do that? Well, one of the things is they're going to have some outstanding designers. So you're going to have Eric Lang. You're going to have Richard Garfield. You're going to have Mike Elliott, Rob Davido. You're just going to have some really nice designers working on here. So I keep going back and forth looking at this project because these games could be amazing. Now, you can pick up just one of the games. You can put down $25 and then choose which of the games you want. Or you can do $145 and get all nine games. And Calliope does a very good job with their games. There's good component quality usually in their games. So I don't feel too worried about that. And the artwork here, at least the artists here, are outstanding. Larry Elmore is here from Dungeons & Dragons. John Kovalec from munchkin and the dork tower you know there's just a lot of good minds and good people going into this game and then it has later stretch goals that will actually get you additional games there's so much to like about this but it really is this true kickstarter project where you have practically no idea what you're getting other than just some basic hints here and there that one's going to be a worker placement game and one's going to be a party game and one is going to have a risk mechanic game with a certain challenge here. and But that's about it. So you're just getting like one or two lines about what the possible game might be. And then you're backing it and then you're crossing your fingers for the next three years. Some of them might be great. Some of them might be bad. But it's kind of hard to pass up a project that each game is only $16. So I'm not sure what to do with this yet. And I'm still not sure if it deserves to be a true acquisition disorder, but man, is it up there right now? One like it sounds so cool, but I, the idea of putting money out there for three years, when uh, presumably if this backs, those games will eventually hit store shelves. That's a tough sell. I mean, who knows? I mean, they're probably going to cost a lot more than sixteen dollars each. Sure. So this is probably a great deal, but three years, and that's three years promised. How long will it actually be in Kickstarter time? That's true. Uh, I don't even know if I'm where I'll be living in three years. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to commit to a board game <laughs> for three years. That's that's a pretty long commitment. Uh, I just, and I don't know that I need that many gateway games that that's badly. True. I do think it's a really cool idea because it could help you fill out the essentials in the collection very quickly. But I don't think it's going to be very good for me, at least, in my stake in life. I think it's one of those kind of campaigns that if you back it, you're probably going to give these out as gifts. Unless somebody says this one's outstanding, you should absolutely keep it. But uh, I don't know. It's one of those campaigns that, you know, Kickstarter does best. Great promises, but, you know, some possible real risks here, too. If only there was a Kicking the Habit podcast that could help us make this decision. But alas. Well, that said, before we get into any more dangerous, expensive territory, that's our acquisition disorders this week. Now on to At the Table with BGA. And now, At the Table with BGA. So the first game that I want to talk about this week has to be Abyss. 
Now, I picked this game up quite a while ago. I watched a ton of playthroughs. I got through a partial game of this. But I finally got to sit down and play the entire game. And i like to send out a big shout-out to Kelsey, who said she was a new gamer, but clearly was a ringer because she played that game so well and she threw so many bad twists at the rest of the gamers at the table that you know you truly knew you were sitting down with a ringer but above and beyond that as we talked about earlier abyss outstanding artwork it's the first thing you're going to know about this game the artwork for this game does so much to kind of really make you feel that you're part of a different world an undersea world and the characters really do come to life when you're looking at these lords in this game and the lords play such a big part because they, they bring you special powers that kind of change the game up. You look at them and they're so unique and so different. And I guarantee you that if you take a look at these lords on Board Game Geek, you haven't seen anything like them out there before. Now, the game's play is very simple. You have a couple of choices. One of the first choices is to explore. And if you explore, there's an exploration deck and you're going to flip over these little cards and they'll have different factions. You will have an opportunity to pay for these allies with pearls. And that's a really cool thing about this game. You get this little clam-shaped cup that holds pearls. And pearls are the currency in this game. And each of these kind of allies will have a 1 through 5 number on them. And that those numbers are important because by purchasing those numbers of a certain color, you can purchase lords that require a certain number of allies at a certain number strength. So that's an opportunity. As the game goes on, the I would say like the assembly kind of grows with more and more allies, face down cards. So you can pick up a pack of those instead of exploring, or you can purchase a lord. So that's pretty much it in a nutshell as far as the different choices you can make. One little thing, as the exploration date comes out, there is an opportunity to fight a monster, which is pretty much a giant eel, which I'm kind of surprised that was the way they went with this. But there's actually a monster track that moves on, and if you decide to fight the monster, you get a bonus. So that's pretty much it. It's not very complicated. You pick the allies, you purchase lords, the lords give you special abilities, some of the lords have keys. You need three keys in order to get a location. Once you get a location, it covers the lords that had the keys, and by covering the lords, you lose the special abilities. So there is a sense of, when do I purchase a location because I'm going to lose the ability of my lords, but at the same time, the locations give you a special benefit that benefits you for victory points at the end of the game. The game is light, the game is fast, the game is fun, it's colorful as can be. It's a solid play. I don't know if it makes it to a buy. Maybe it just makes it to a buy just because of the artwork. It kind of leans it over the edge, but it's more of a light gateway game. But uh, yeah, I'm going to say, just because of Javier Colette's work and artwork here and just depth of theme, this game goes past a play onto a buy. All right, Anthony, what about you? What, what have you been getting to the table lately? All right, so I have a ton of games sitting on my shelf that I have received at various stages in recent months from Kickstarter. I haven't been able to get all of them to the table yet for various reasons, depending on the number of people and, you know, whatever else is keeping them from getting out there. Too many good games, not enough time. Uh, but one I've been really, really, really wanting to play and finally got to the table is Fidelitas. This is a very 
small, simple-looking card game that was on Kickstarter about a year ago, maybe a little less than a year ago, last summer sometime. And what really captured my eye when this was on Kickstarter was the artwork. It's it's very vibrant. It's very bright. It's very cartoon-esque, but not cartoony. And a very unique looks for these different characters that show up on these different cards. The game itself is relatively simple. Uh, it's To some degree, it's area control but not really what you're going to have is multiple locations on the table that you'll lay out according to numbers on the cards and these are different locations in the city and you start the game with a certain number of different character cards in different cities that are kind of drawn randomly from the deck each player is going to get visitor cards and mission cards and every turn all you're going to do is play one visitor card And if you're able to play one mission card to get victory points, the mission cards, which is how you get most of your victory points, are going to be things like have five different types of characters at one location or clear a location with X number of soldiers on it. And then each of these visitor cards has kind of a unique ability. So the soldier, for example, says if three soldiers are in one location, clear that location, remove everybody from it. Others might say you know, move two characters from this location to any other locations. Uh, A lot of the different cards allow you to move people around. So as you play, you're going to be maneuvering pieces around the board, trying to set yourself up so you can complete the missions. And as a result, you're kind of constantly fighting against the other players, especially if their missions directly contradict yours. And because there's so many ways to clear the board, if you can figure out what the other person is trying to do, you can kind of mess with them a little bit that way. You don't need that many points to win the game. So once you get up towards the higher player counts, you only need like five or six points to win. And any one mission might have two or three points on it. So it might sound like it would be very frustrating when people clear your stuff all the time, but you only really have to successfully complete a mission two or three times to win. I think it probably would play best with a smaller player count just because if you have too many people, once it gets all the way back around the table what you've been setting up could be completely destroyed by then. But even then, you do have enough control. You can chain things around a little bit. And there are ways to lock down what's out of location so people can't mess with it um, enough that you could eventually manipulate your way into having the situation you want. It, it is fun. And it actually has a, a solo play variant in it, uh, which I didn't know when I backed it. But it seems like that's kind of a thing people do in Kickstarter now that I have played through it's it's a high score variant so it's not the game doesn't really change too much or get harder it's just you're trying to reach a high score based on the tweaks you make but it is a fun game to that end it's nice to look at most of the mechanics work very well and it was fairly quick and easy to teach so uh total time maybe 20 to 30 minutes tops so it's it's not too heavy either definitely well worth the play i enjoyed it quite a bit speaking of kickstars one game that i was able to get to table was the Kickstarter that I backed Lanterns, the Harvest Festival. Now, this was a fun little game. And when I first looked at this, this was something that I was talking about back in the day when I was doing Kicking the Habit. And as soon as I saw this game, as soon as I saw the gameplay, I thought about how much fun my family would have with this game. And I instantly backed this game. Now, Lanterns is a quick-playing tile placement game. So... It reminds me a little bit of Carcassonne, so you're placing tiles, and depending on how they match up with other tiles, you're going to score bonus tokens, and you're going to score bonus cards that are going to lead you to dedication markers, which are the victory points in this game. So you take a tile, which has four different sides to it, 
and on each side has a certain color of lanterns kind of in the water. And based upon how you place that tile, the lantern color that's facing that player, and this is a four-player game with a square tile, they will receive a lantern card of that color. So every turn, even if it's not your turn, you're absolutely going to get a lantern of a certain color. Now, where the strategy comes in in this game, and my family started picking up on that, was you have to be really careful where you're placing lanterns of a certain color because everyone is trying to collect the three different dedication markers. The dedication tokens are one of each color, which scores you the most amount of points, and then as the pile kind of dwindles, they're worth less and less victory points. Another pile is actually three pairs of any color, and then the final one is four of any color. So you're collecting cards of every color throughout the game. There is a hand limit, so you can't just collect forever, but you want to keep an eye out for who you're giving what color to, and some of the tiles have platforms which give you tokens, which means that you can trade a color of a lantern for another color, but that's pretty much it. It's a simple and fun game. It plays with family and friends. It's not an in-depth game. It's definitely a gateway game, and I think that once this game kind of hits the store, this could be I don't know, maybe this could be one of the next gateway games that everyone's talking about. So absolutely a play, and if you have the right people, and if you have a looking for a light gateway game for the family, a buy. And with that said, that's everything for At the Table with BGA. And now, on to our feature review. And now, BGA's feature review. So today's feature is going to be our top 10 best co-op games. Uh, and this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. As frequent listeners will know, I am a huge fan of cooperative games. Both because I think they're very accessible to new players. They bring people in better than other games do. Because it's not intimidating that your teammate has played a game a thousand times before. It's inspiring. Where it is intimidating when your opponent has played a game a thousand times before and you haven't. Uh, so I think it's you know a great way to reach out. And at the same time, I just like cooperating with people. I like sitting around with my friends and joking and working together to solve a really hard problem together. Now, in this list, it's worth noting that we decided to stick to what you might call pure cooperative games. That are That is, any sort of games that are entirely defined by all the players working together as a single unit to complete some goal. This means we've excluded games that you might call semi-cooperative, like Dead of Winter, where individuals have goals that cause them to act against the best interest of the group, and in fact may be traitors, and we've also excluded any game with a prominent traitor mechanic because we don't want to uh, allow for that sort of confounding factor Uh, there is an obvious exception of a game that at least has a trader mechanic in one of its expansions and you can probably guess what that is but we'll talk about it more when we get there Uh, so uh, anything else about co-op games guys before we move into our list so tell me again why dead of winter is not going to win this category dead of winter is not going to win this category because it is not a pure co-op game it's an excellent game but not a pure co-op look now i if Origins can do what they do with their games, then Dead of Winter can win this category. 
That if winter can win every category, every category. against does well, we're using them as a standard. I know, because uh, why is it not listed as best children's game? I, I can't understand it. Seriously, guys. <laughs> Teach them the valuable lesson that no one can be trusted. There <laughs> you go. <laughs> Nothing like sacrificing people for the quote-unquote greater good. Huh? Maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. All right. Well, with all of that uh, said, let's move into our list. So our number 10 best co-op game is Marvel Legendary. And this is, for those of you who don't know, a superhero cooperative game with a strong deck-building inclination uh, where you take certain superheroes, shuffle them into a deck that you can buy from, and then you buy and build up your individual decks, which you use to contribute to the sort of general goal of defeating the Mastermind and his henchmen and stopping an oncoming crisis. Uh, Legendary is a huge game in the sheer number of cards it involves, uh, and it's quite popular and a quite good game. What do you guys think about Legendary? Well, I think it's not Dead of Winter, so, eh. (laughs) (laughs) Automatically loses. But Chris, don't you know that everything's Dead of Winter if you believe in yourself? (laughs) Well, you know what's funny you you know, you could say that Legendary is kind of like Dead of Winter because it does have that really annoying mechanic where you can win the game, but then you go through your deck and see who has the most victory points because then they're the real winner. Because isn't that a, what a co-op game is about? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, the winniest winner thing is a little <laughs> weird. It really pisses me off when people do it when you lose. Yes. And people will sometimes start counting up their points to be the winniest loser. And I'm you guys, <laughs> you totally lost track of what's important in this game. Sure, I could defeat the villain, or I could pick up these random cards that are going to give me victory points. I think we know what I should do here. It's an okay game. It's definitely on our number 10. It plays a little bit long. But if you choose the appropriate decks, you choose the appropriate mastermind and the the appropriate setup, it can be a very good game. Yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of fun playing Legendary. The biggest things that hurt it for me are its size, and particularly its size in respect of how long it takes to set up and how long it takes to break down. Yeah. Uh, because that just makes it, you know, if I'm going to spend as long setting up a game and cleaning up after it as I'm going to spend playing it, uh, it's just not a pleasant experience for me. And I have uh, to say, this was the one time I actually saw somebody bring in a mechanical deck shuffler. Because to shuffle all those cards together, especially in the sleeves, was just such a massive undertaking that he thought that was possibly the only way he could get that game out to the table at, in any reasonable amount of time. Yeah, and I mean, it's it just... It makes like a mess too. You have to sort all the individual cards and their special subcategories, and it, you know it's something that's hard to avoid in a game like this. But it does hurt its playability for me, and its enjoyment, at least when you're being responsible for keeping track of stuff, right? When you're the experienced player, I really had fun when I was the newbie at the table and everyone else was doing the math and stuff for me. But then when I was trying to teach it to people, it became so frustrating because I was having to keep track of everything. Yes, and I think that's part of the critique that we're going to talk about throughout this list is the alpha gamer problem when it comes to co-ops. Where some of the co-ops, it's just easier or sometimes even necessary for one player to kind of take over and tell everyone their strategy and that that's what everyone's going to follow. 
But towards the end of the list, that problem isn't as big of an issue. So that's why those games are higher on the list. All right, so our number nine co-op game, and this is the one that I wanted to put an asterisk by because in at least one very popular expansion, you do have the option of playing as a traitor. Uh, this is Pandemic, right? And the, the traitor, of course, would be the bioterrorist here. Since that's not part of the core game, I didn't feel like it had to be excluded on those grounds. I don't, so the core game is a pure co-op, and that's really what we're talking about here when we're rating it. Yeah, and I think a lot of these games, if they are popular enough to have that many expansions, eventually someone throws a, a trader mechanic expansion in there. It's kind of the natural fit for a co-op. The game itself, though, Pandemic, I mean, if you think of the modern rise of co-op gaming, this is kind of the poster child for that. Uh, it's one of the most popular. It's developed by one of the best-known co-op designers, Matt Leacock. It has, I don't know how many expansions now, five, maybe six? Um there are spinoffs with The Cure and Contagion, which is not a co-op, but it's a spinoff. And then the upcoming Legacy game. Uh, Pandemic's kind of this behemoth, and it's only number nine on our list because the core game of Pandemic, while so important to co-op gaming as a whole, is still not... Um, it doesn't quite... It's not quite as engaging or quite as interesting or quite as uh, revolutionary today as maybe it was, especially compared to some of these other games. So, awesome game, but I think I might like it the most out of the three of us, but even still, I don't feel like it's the strongest on this list for me, just because so much more has been done. Now, if you throw a bunch of expansions in there, you can kind of tweak the game to how you want it, and there's so many different ways to play. But if we're just talking about Pandemic, the base game Pandemic, um, there's a lot more you can do with those mechanics. Yeah, I mean... Pandemic's also it's not very charismatic in a sense, right? It's very abstract. There is a theme, and it's an interesting theme, right? This idea of global contagion and trying to save the world from devastating outbreak. Uh, but you're really just moving cubes around on a board. And that's a little bit lackluster when you're going to compare it to some of our later games and the, the sort of miniatures and pieces they have. Uh, and on top of that, as you're saying, Anthony, right, it's almost been so influential that in retrospect, it's cliche because every game is a mirror of it or a parody of it or a descendant of it. It just feels almost exhaustingly familiar when you play it. Chris, what about you? I don't know. Pandemic does have that alpha gamer problem for me. And it sometimes seems like it's more of a math problem that needs to be figured out than it is a interesting kind of dynamic gameplay where you can do a lot of different things and those things are fun and you can try out something and your character is super unique but it really seems like when you sit down to play pandemic oftentimes is there is a good choice and then a secondary so-so choice and you you as a character really don't have any choice on what you're going to do you need to fly to that city to take care of that virus. And I think that for me personally, that's the one problem I have, and that's the biggest problem I have with Pandemic, which is it's a co-op that's really just a one-player game in a lot of respects. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, again, you know, Pandemic's an excellent game, and it's super significant in the history of board gaming. Sure. I just think it's, I think we all sort of, it's been outclassed. Yeah, I have it for the iPad, and I picked it up not too long ago, but it's 
I don't know. It, it, it The roles aren't as unique and the gameplay isn't as dynamic for each individual player, but it's still an outstanding game. All right. So our number eight co-op game is going to be Ghost Stories. Now, we talked about this very recently because we all sat down and played it together. Uh, and it was a good time. Now, we had a pretty easy run of things, but Anthony, you were saying that you'd played it again and had somewhat different outcomes? Yes. So, yeah, so we played Ghost Stories for the first time. It was on the introductory level. So uh, not quite a teaching game or playing the full game, but about as easy as you can make it, Uh, which I believe the major difference is you get, everybody gets one extra chi and they start the game with additional um, tokens that they can use against the black cards. So I took out the extra black tokens, and I took out the extra chi. Uh, I didn't add any uh, incarnations to the deck. I just changed those couple things to make it kind of the full game. And I got obliterated. Like, <laughs> the game the game we played took a little over an hour, I think, maybe an hour 15, because um, we played it through to the end, and we won. The first game I played was maybe 30 minutes, and then we were dead. And the second game was a little longer, about 40 minutes. I played that one by myself. It was closer, but not <laughs> not, a, not a win by any stretch of the imagination. The It definitely builds up fast. And if you make the wrong decision or get like two or three bad rolls in a row and don't have uh, the tokens you need to back it up, things fall apart very, very quickly. And I think we might have gotten a little lucky on our end and just had a little bit of extra resources that we needed to uh, stave off those problems. But the game gets much harder. So uh, the it's too easy concern has definitely been alleviated for me. As for the game itself, I mean, it's it's very fun to look at. Beautiful artwork, uh, nice components, even if the uh, little um, Taoists are a little similar to each other, um, despite the color differences. But nice Buddha tokens and nice uh, Haunter tokens. Overall, it's very fun to play. It's very fun to look at. I am very excited to check out the expansions as well. Um, As far as a co-op, it is a little different from a lot of the other ones on the list here because it does have those random elements that you don't always have. And it is still pretty accessible. It doesn't take a lot of time to teach. So it's a fun one. And it's... There's a lot of things that have been done with these mechanics to enhance them over the years, but it's still one of the stalwarts of the uh, co-op stable of games out there. Yeah, Ghost Stories is a very charismatic co-op game, and as you were pointing out, the materials, right, the the little pieces are just fantastic, I think. You know, they're, sure, they're a little same-ish, but what do you expect? My only real problem with Ghost Stories is that the choices at times feel either very scripted or very simple. And I feel like there's room for more complexity in co-op games, and I enjoy that complexity. But it's a very good game. Chris, what did you think about Ghost Stories? I enjoyed a lot about that game. The artwork was outstanding. The simple gameplay didn't bother me too much. It reminded me a lot of Yrkdesil, that North mythology where you have these baddies coming out every round, and depending on how many baddies you put into the deck, and... That kind of changes the gameplay a little bit, and you can make you can tighten things up to make it a little harder for you, and it shuts down certain locations, and you have to keep them from not moving too far. So these two games are very similar for me. I like both of them. Ghost Stories, I guess, has a little bit of a, a bump with the little tokens and things like that, but, you know... It's a fun game. I would absolutely play that again. And if this was on sale, like say at Metro Market, I would pick this up. All right. So that's our number eight 
co-op game, which is Ghost Stories, and on to our number seven, Forbidden Desert, which is the big brother improved, well, I guess younger brother, actually, of Forbidden Island, but it is the new and improved Mark II of Forbidden Island, and very plays very similarly in a lot of ways in this sort of terrain limitation concepts, right? The gathering of pieces and bringing them to a central location and the need to escape, the sort of necessary codependence of all people that if one person dies, everybody dies. And it's a fun, simple co-op game. And I have to say that my only real criticism of Forbidden Desert is that it's on the lower end of simplicity, which is not really a criticism, but it really is a fantastic co-op game. I love playing it. I've brought it out with all different kinds of people with no problem. And the little skyship you are trying to build is a really cool tut. Uh, at least that's what I thought. I think it's a fantastic game. Uh, but what about you guys? Anthony, how about you? You take a mechanic that's perfect for the family, it's perfect for kids, and you boil it down to mechanics that make it not just perfect for them, but also very accessible and easy to teach. Um, and then Forbidden Desert takes that even further and just creates this beautiful game with these wonderful components that's really hard. So... Uh, it's it's kind of a perfect mash of everything good about co-ops as a teaching tool, as a family experience, as a wonderful way to you know engage with children, whether you're teaching them or you're just having fun with the family. So Forbidden Desert, while not in my collection currently, will almost certainly be eventually uh, as my kids get older, because I think it's it's one that we'll have a lot of fun to, together with. Yeah. And Chris, how about you? I've always liked this game, and you know whether it's Forbidden Desert or Forbidden Island. It's such an interesting idea. It's so nice to see a co-op game available for families. And the mechanic about how the desert kind of moves and the sand piles up and you have to dig your way out. It really does have some tension to this game. I'm not a fan of the tin box, which kind of keeps me away a little bit because I really don't have any place to stick this game. And, you know, despite the fact that the sand is very dynamic, it's still a little bit of a, quote-unquote, or no pun intended, a dry theme. So I don't know if family is going to be really interested in sitting down and playing this. But it's a game that I don't currently own, but I expect to own at some point in the future. All right, so that's our number seven co-op game, Forbidden Desert. On to our number six, which is one of the few on this list I haven't played. Number six and five are, in fact, the only two I haven't played. Uh, so I'll be suspiciously quiet. Uh, but our number six best co-op game is Robinson Crusoe, which I've heard good things about, but yeah, never played. So, uh, Anthony, why don't you take us away? <laughs> Robinson Crusoe is, uh, you may, re if you haven't played this recently, this is the game that you couldn't find two years ago. Z-Man released this and it was almost impossible to find for like a year. And we, when we finally got our hands on it, it was a really, really unique experience. As far as co-ops go, you definitely, everybody has a unique uh, role in the game. It's, there's always the alpha gamer problem, but it's not quite as strong here as in some of the other games we talked about. But what really makes Robinson Crusoe unique, and what I liked about it so much, is that it tells a story. Uh, when you play a card, you know, it has those two parts to it, and it'll go back in the deck, and later it'll come out with that second, often, much less friendly <laughs> result where you kind of you're building a story as you go and it's going to be random and you're going to experience different things each time the game itself comes with multiple scenarios that each kind of cover a different story on this island and you know as we go through to the top of the list what you'll find is and what we found when we put this together is that the best co-op games tend to build that group narrative 
where you're not just playing a puzzle, which was a lot of, you know, very basic co-op games end up feeling like a puzzle that everybody works on together, which is fun. But when it really goes to the next level is when that puzzle becomes a story and you're trying to solve it or work your way through it as a group. And that's something Robinson Crusoe does really well. It's it's a lot of fun for that reason. And it's really nice to look at, like component-wise and just in terms of the production here. It's a very solid game. Chris, how about you? Yeah, I would have to agree with that. Robinson Crusoe does something I think that's very interesting, whereas most games, when they have multiple different types of themes and mechanics and stories and scenarios, each of these different scenarios slash gameplays does feel different. And honestly, the idea that you can choose just succeed, but you would have to give up, I think it's an additional action, or roll a die and then risk it, and then bad stuff could happen to you. Or even the deck mechanic where you see something bad's going to happen. You ate some, you know, some wild fruit, and you're like, I hope that doesn't work out badly later on. And you slip that into the deck, and then later on it's going to affect you. And once again, the characters do play a little bit different. The theme does come through. You do feel like you're scavenging on the island. You do feel like you're exploring the island. It's an absolutely outstanding game. It's a little bit heavy. It's a little bit fiddly. It's something that you really need gamers to play. It's not a, an immediate entry gateway game, but it's a lot of fun. All right. So that is our number six co-op game, which is Robinson Crusoe. And now for the other game I've not played, our number five, the Lord of the Rings card game. So uh, again, I'll just hand it off to you, Anthony, and uh, you tell me about this game. Okay. Uh, the Lord of the Rings card game, again, you know, this is a strong storytelling game. Uh, thematically, obviously, it takes place in Middle-earth in the world of Lord of the Rings. But the core game and most all of its expansions, except for some of the saga expansions, um, don't utilize the core story. There might be characters you recognize, but it's playing between the books, using additional lore, kind of building on the mythos that Tolkien created. Um, now, whether you think that's uh, sacrilege or not is a different issue, but I find it very engaging, and it, it makes for a very fun experience kind of exploring this world, and the artwork is beautiful. As a co-op, it's it's a living card game, so you're going to constantly have new cards, and you can build decks to play against these uh, specific encounters that you're going to go up against. And as a result, there's a lot of different opportunities, a lot of different ways to play the game, especially with two people. It plays very well solo as well, but the game does feel to me like it was designed with two in mind. It doesn't scale beyond that very well. I know you can play with four if you have two base sets, but that's not something you're going to commonly run across. It is definitely a two-player co-op, but as a two-player co-op, beautiful game. And one of the few as a solo game that is very engaging to me on a story level, something you don't find a lot in that. Uh, Chris, how about you? I really do love this game. Once again, beautiful artwork, great components, really well thought out. It takes the whole Lord of the Rings realm, and it doesn't take you down the same worn down path. It allows you to explore all the different aspects of the world, all the different characters of the world, and it plays so well. It's so finely crafted. If you're looking for a two-player card game that's going to keep you coming back again and again for the additional adventures, you can't do any better than Lord of the Rings the card game. All right, so that's our number five, Lord of the Rings the card game. 
Uh, and now I get to be back in the mix with our number four best co-op game, Sentinels. Now, Sentinels is a co-op superhero game in a sense, right, sharing a theme with Legendary, though the way it plays out is very differently, right? You select a deck and play a certain character uh, in a way that you don't really get to do in Legendary because you're sort of drafting from a randomly generated pool. Uh, and that is a criticism people have of Legendary, and they tend to like Sentinels when they say that. Uh, and Sentinels is really just a very fun, cooperative card game. I'm having trouble thinking of much more to say about it than that. Because I don't really have any strong feelings here, except that it's, yeah, it's a pretty good game. A lot of cool expansions, fun characters, solid artwork. Uh, I think the card quality wasn't always the best, but generally a good game. Uh, what do you guys think? Uh, Chris, why don't you take it from here? I remember when I first saw Sentinels come out there, and I was really kind of concerned because... I didn't think that was a game that I was going to be interested in. And obviously, as you said, Daniel, one of the challenges with that game is the artwork is so-so in some cases. In some cases, they spent a lot of time developing the characters. But the, for the vast majority of the cards in the game, which is the entire game, it's, it's a whole bunch of deck of cards, you know, it seems like they threw some color here and there and said, eh, there you go. And the card quality is extremely poor. I think the first time we played the game and I put it back in the box, it wasn't sleeved. So I'm, <laughs> I can admit that. But the cards started to warp. I, I, one deck that somebody was playing with was kind of, I guess because of the moisture, started to bend a little bit. And I was like, <sighs> if it wasn't for the fact that I bought this on sale at Miniature Market, I would really be upset with it. But that being said, once it got to the table, I love this game. It's outstanding. Each character plays differently. They have their special abilities. You are playing your own role. You're helping everyone. You're cooperating, but you're your own player. Endless, endless numbers of expansions, endless numbers of villains, environment decks which mess things up a little bit and kind of bring some fun into the game. A truly great co-op, something that's often overlooked because of Marvel Legendary and DC Deck Builder, so they kind of have the superhero market locked up. But Sentinels of the Multiverse, if you're looking for a superhero game and you're looking for a co-op game, I got to say you got to go there because it's so much fun. And Anthony, how about you? Uh, so that's Sentinels, our number four co-op game, an excellent card-driven superhero cooperative game. Uh, now, the next three are all probably in my top ten games of all time. So I'm excited to be doing this list uh, at this point. Uh, number three is Flashpoint Fire and Rescue. Now, Flashpoint is a game where you play as fire rescue professionals and you come in and save people from burning buildings or planes or train wrecks, depending on what expansions you have. It is, I think, just a fantastic cooperative game and that it's enormously difficult to predict and enormously chaotic at times without feeling arbitrary. And it is very difficult if you want it to be. In fact, Flashpoint is one of the first games I break out when I'm trying to get a non-gamer to start gaming. It is my go-to gateway game because it's very accessible, it's very friendly, and it scales up so well. Flashpoint is able to go pretty much anywhere from eh, pretty simple, pretty easy, you'll probably win, to oh dear god, why, why is everything on fire? Uh, pretty quickly uh, and very flexibly. It can hit every point in between those two as well. 
Uh, I've never had a bad time playing Flashpoint, and I've never had anyone at my table have a bad time either. Uh, this is why it's absolutely one of my favorite games of all time. Uh, Chris, what about you? This is my favorite co-op for playing with family and friends who are not gamers. We talked about Forbidden Desert, Forbidden Island, and there's a lot of games that are specifically crafted for family play. I don't think that there is a better family co-op game than Flashpoint. It seems at least initially like, wow, you know, I'm not sure what's going to happen here. But right after the first round, you know everything that you need to know. The pathways to victory are fun and different depending on the character roles that you have. And the character roles are slightly different so that you can play this game differently by the character roles that you kind of put in for that fire rescue. But above and beyond that, it's fun, it's light, it's simple, it plays with everyone, everyone gets the theme, everyone roots for the dog to save the day, and everyone loves saving the little animals when you flip over the tokens. So does not have the alpha gamer problem, and it's it's just a great game. Anthony, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I don't have anything to say that you guys didn't already say. Uh, Flashpoint's awesome. <laughs> this is a game that uh, I've... Like you said, Daniel, I've always had fun playing. I've never had a bad time with it. it and that's not something I can say about other co-ops. Other co-ops, as much as I might like all of these games, there have been bad experiences with most of them just because any given time, the game can either beat you too quickly or somebody's alpha gaming. They have quirks to them that make them not always play out perfectly. Flashpoint seems to find a way to do it, you know? However... Whatever difficulty level you put it at, whatever roles you pull out, uh, whoever whoever is in your group, it's it's designed in a way that just really works. And I like that a lot about it. All right, so that is our number three best co-op game of all time, Flashpoint. Now on to number two, Mice and Mystics. We've talked about Mice and Mystics a lot here before. It is a cooperative, narrative-driven game where you play as a prince and his cohort who have turned themselves through magic into mice to escape the clutches of an evil enchantress and thwart her plans for your father's kingdom. And it is kind of silly at first when you're starting to get into it because there's this really storybook vibe to it. And I found myself thinking I was going to, you know, be sort of cynical and resist it, right? I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a grown man. I don't need a storybook, whatever. Uh, but then I listened to the audio, which is an optional thing you can buy. And after about 30 seconds of listening to this story, that resistance faded away. And I found myself just enraptured with this narrative world and this really in engaging narrative cooperative play. It's a very uh, quick game to learn, though there are a few complexities. So it does help to have a more experienced player at the table. It's a little bit weightier than some of the other games we've talked about in that regard, right? There are some special rules that happen. Uh, but it really is just so charismatic and so much fun that I've I've never had a bad time playing it like Flashpoint. And I would not, I could not imagine losing this game, right? If, if my collection burned down tomorrow, it would be on the list of first things I bought another copy of. Uh, so that's that's my views on Mice and Mystics. Now, Anthony, I know you've had a lot of experience with this game, so why don't you let us know your feelings here? Yeah, this is uh, this is one of my favorite games. It's actually one of the first ones that I owned um, way back when I started, uh, way back, <laughs> two years ago when I started uh, buying games from uh, in the hobby market. And 
I've painted all the pieces. I got everything sleeved. I've played this game many, many times. And there's just something about it. And every time I pull it out with a new group of people, it takes, you know, it takes a few minutes to set up. But by the time you get through the rules and that first little bit of narrative, everybody's entranced. Everybody's involved. Even though those first couple, you know, chapters are pretty basic and not particularly hard people really get into it quickly. And that's the thing I really like about this game. The narrative element really brings it all together. On the flip side, the narrative element does hurt the replayability a little bit. Uh, Now, I don't meet myself and really everybody I know, nobody really plays a single game that much. And at this point, Mice and Mystics, if you buy expansions that go with it, you're looking at 30 plus chapters to play through, which I certainly will never get through myself. Um, But so there's a lot of, expandability here but the replayability is a little thinner uh but that's the the only small quibble i have and even that's not a quibble that's just a recognition of the reality of a narrative-based campaign-based game this is very strong it's not the first type of game you'd think of for a co-op because it is more like a dungeon crawl and a a story-based game but it's exactly what it is you you gather as a group you play through these stories together um you have to work together and it works extremely well in almost everything it tries to do. I think the highest compliment that I can pay this game is that it does a service to the industry. You could look at the idea that it's mice and you go, oh, that's adorable and kind of brush it off. But as as Anthony said, it is a gateway entrance to RPGs, tabletop games, bringing your family into games enjoying a brand new world even as adults that we usually don't kind of get involved in having that narrative story to walk us through having some interesting dynamic gameplay man there's just so much fun to this game and i think that's some things we don't often think about you know did you have fun do you want to play the next chapter and i'm really still kind of worried about lily is she going to make it through she was trapped at that stage and I, you know, she got through, but I don't know if she's going to make it. And I really want the story to continue. And I really enjoyed playing that game. I like adding to my character to level them up, to give them new equipment. And I don't know. It's it's a full flavored game that if this game could reach a larger audience, like in a big box store, I think you would just have masses of people, you know, banging down the board game geek <laughs> website because. This is really the game I think that at some point, hopefully, Plathack can get this out to a larger market. I think it's going to change gaming. All right, so that is our number two Mice and Mystics, uh, which is, I think, the most effective way to build a gaming group. Right, get them with that. Uh, so now on to our number one best cooperative game of all time, our absolute favorite, and that is Defenders of the Realms. Now, Defenders is a high fantasy themed that is Dungeons and Dragons style cooperative game where you fight against various evil armies the undead the orcs the dragons etc to defend your capital city you take on roles like you do in flashpoint pandemic and a number of other good cooperative games which is sort of a hallmark of really good cooperative games if you ask me so you select roles that have unique powers and abilities uh, and then you go out and fight against the impending legion in many ways it feels like all these other games smashed together at various points. So the way that mobs work and the way they spread kind of feels like pandemic at times. Uh, and like good co-ops, Defenders makes you sweat. The thing that gets it to number one for me, 
And it's a close tie or a close run with Mice and Mystics. Not quite a tie. Defenders does, I think, eke it out. Uh, is a story I've told a number of times, so I'll still only in short form this time, which is, is it the only game I've had a table of, I think, seven people, many, several of whom were not even playing. They were just watching, waiting with bated breath on a single die roll, and then erupt into cheering and applause so loud that the entire game store was interrupted. And we're usually a very quiet group. Um, it is just an absolutely fantastic game. The only caveat is, oh boy, is it heavy. Compared to the rest of these games, it is a very heavy cooperative game. But that's part of what makes it so fantastic. Uh, Chris, why don't you tell us some more about Defenders? What can I say about a game that's probably my favorite game of all time that I haven't already said? As Daniel said, there's just some outstanding moments this game that go so far beyond just being a co-op game. Usually when you think about a co-op game, you're like, oh, that's going to be fun. We'll play together and oh, that'll be nice. But usually the versus type of games is really what gets your blood boiling and really gets you kind of interested and kind of gets your face into the board and you're really struggling to get through and you're really invested in your character and you're hoping things will work out. And you know what? Defenders of the Realm does that. You have an interesting character. The character has special abilities that's, that's radically different than anybody else. The game is dynamic. Anything could possibly happen. How the, the bosses move, how, how the minions move, the different generals that you can kind of swap in and out with the expansions, the multitude of other Dungeons & Dragons-like characters that play into this game. Men are represented, females are represented, all quality classes and races, everyone is represented here. This is the true gamer's type of game. It has RPG elements, as board game elements, as co-op elements, even pandemic elements. And I love so much about Euros, but there's just something about this game that just speaks to me in a way that nothing else really does and i'm such a big fan of it and anthony how about you this is a game i haven't played it as much and it wasn't even really on my radar until that first time we played it together but it only took one time through for me to kind of jump on board with you guys and say that this is a fantastic co-op you know it takes all those different elements and it's easy to look at it and say it's a lot like this game or a lot like that game but it pulls it all together it makes it all work in a way that few of those other games do and it builds an experience. And for a game that doesn't have a built-in narrative, you end up kind of creating your own, which is impressive in its own right, because not a lot of games build that. Games like Pandemic are so abstract that you're just trying to get rid of those cubes, whereas in Defenders, you are going on a quest and getting rid of those minions and trying to save the day. And it really feels like you're doing it as a group. So 100% on board with you guys. This is one of my favorite co-ops too, and it definitely succeeds in every way I need a co-op to succeed in a group, <laughs> to have fun. All right, so that is our top 10 best co-op games. Let us know what you think about our rankings, if you think they're out of order, or if you think we've missed some really important games, because there are a lot of great co-ops we didn't have time to, uh, to cover here. So, uh, you know, get to us on Twitter, Facebook, any way you can. Messenger Pigeon, all's <laughs> fine. Uh, and let us know what you think. So that's everything for this week. Be sure to keep in contact with us on Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our guild on BoardGameGeek, and if you think this episode was worth at least a dollar, check out our Patreon account. We could really use your support. 
This is Chris. This is Anthony. And this is Daniel. And until next time, we will save you all a seat at the Origins Awards Nominee Committee because they could use as much help as they can get. 